So, you know, one of, the, uh, one of the formal principles that every true Protestant church agrees on is the doctrine of sola scriptura, right? the doctrine of uh, belief in Scripture alone as our authority, and not, not in the opinions of the popes in Rome or professors in the academy or, or even the, the neighbor in your pew there, but that we place our trust in what the Reformers called the discernible excellence of the text, as well as the personal witness of the Holy Spirit to the heart of each person, a doctrine which makes the Bible, the Reformers said, self-authenticating, clear to the rational reader, its own interpreter in disagreements, and sufficient of itself to be the final authority of Christian doctrine. Which is kind of a long way around the barn to reiterate what I told you last Sunday, and that is the importance of letting Scripture interpret Scripture. So, so that when it comes to passages that might appear to be confusing, that we ask for the illumination of the Holy Spirit, uh, and, and then we keep reading the Word to find out if God has anything else to say about it anywhere else in the Bible. And guys, today we've hit the jackpot uh, where that is concerned as we come to Psalm 110, which just happens to be the psalm that is referred back to more than any other psalm by the authors of the New Testament. And are you ready for this? 26 times. So I, I was going to list them all up there, but you can look it up on your own. 26 times. Uh, psalm 110 is quoted or referenced in all four Gospels, in the book of Acts, in the book of Romans, in 1 Corinthians, in Ephesians chapter 1, in Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, in the first epistle of Peter, it's mentioned three times in the book of the Revelation and 13 times in the book of Hebrews. How important do you think Psalm 110 is? Uh, and all, all of this done to confirm Jesus' unique identity within himself as both the physical descendant of King David and the eternal Son of God, as both our, our great high priest and the second person of the Trinity as the, the pre-existent Word of God and the incarnate infant of Bethlehem. And all of that laid out uh, through the text of Psalm 110 that's easily identifiable as the preeminent Messianic psalm. And at the same time, as you're going to see, provides a unique privilege along with David for us to eavesdrop at the door of heaven on a conversation that David recorded between God the Father and our gracious Lord Jesus Christ. So... Uh, that's a lot to unpack in a tiny little psalm. <clears throat> but I hope you'll join me there. Psalm 110. Hope you're following along in, in your own Bible. It's cool that it's there on the screen, but it's even more important that you know that it's in the Bible in your hands. Uh, psalm 110, the superscribed a Psalm of David. And he writes, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs. Over the wide earth, he will drink from the brook by the way, and therefore he will lift up his head. 
Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. God, our Father, we thank and uh, praise you so much for these holy scriptures which you've caused to be written for our learning. And so, Father, we ask you to, uh, to take them now and, and this message and by your Holy Spirit uh, illumine our minds. Open our eyes to see wondrous things in the truth of your word. Open our ears to hear your still, small voice. And all of this, Father, we ask for the glory of your Son and for his sake, our Lord Jesus. Amen. So, you know... Um, have you guys noticed how the, the world, especially right now, seems to be revolving around opinion polls, right? I mean, just, just pick up a magazine, um, <clears throat> turn on the news, spend five minutes on Facebook, and you'll either see the results of a poll uh, or, or you'll be asked to, to participate in one, even those robocalls, right? Who's getting the robocalls, right? In fact, I, I was just telling Vicky the other day, um, I had gotten one of those automated phone calls saying if I took their survey, then I won either... Uh, $250 in cash or a pair of tickets to an Elvis Presley tribute concert, but I wasn't sure whether to press one for the money or two for the show. <laughs> See, that was funny, Rick. I told you that was funny. <laughs> when we did our sermon check yesterday, I said, Rick, do you think that's funny? And he didn't really answer me. So, But anyway, I, t- I tell you all of that to say this. In, this is in our effort to explore the places where Psalm 110 is expounded, in other verses of scripture, uh, I want us to turn to a gospel lesson where Jesus and his disciples get involved in a poll of sorts, basically a first century messianic opinion poll, but it wasn't to assess the mood of the day uh, or, or as something to do to fill up a magazine article or a TV spot. And Jesus didn't ask his question to the people of his day out of mere curiosity or uh, in an effort to boost his own ego, but because the answer that he was after is so very, very important. And the issue he's raising is not a matter of opinion, but of objective reality, because everything that matters, church, hinges on your answer to his question today, whose son is the Christ? Whose son is the Christ? So if if you're following along, uh, I'm going to be reading from Matthew 22, beginning in verse 41. So now while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, what do you think about the Christ, whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. And he said to them, how is it then that David, from, from our psalm today, in the spirit calls him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how's he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. Uh, that gospel reading is one of the key texts of the New Testament. It's a turning point, really, in Jesus' ministry uh, as he begins teaching inside the temple, in the temple courts. Uh, and the ruling class of his day, you'll remember, were not too keen on Jesus setting up shop there and hanging out his, his shingle. Uh, and so as he did, he was confronted by opposition from the Pharisees and from the Sadducees and the scribes, the, the religious leaders of the people. And they pressed him with questions that were designed to trip him up and to discredit him in front of the people. But if you remember, of course, Jesus, he answered each one of them, right? And the more they asked him, the more he exposed the hard-hearted unbelief of his opponents in the process. Uh, Until in the end, all they succeeded in doing was discrediting themselves. And then just in the course of the story, when the debate appeared to be over, just when it seemed like it really would have been 
better for his critics to just kind of lick their wounds and slink away uh, before they made even bigger fools of themselves. Our Lord asked a question of his own, and he throws out kind of a softball one, really saying, what do you, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Uh, and Well, he, he might as well have asked him if water was wet or if the sky was blue, right? Because everybody... Everybody from the high priest down to the, the lowest handmaiden knew the answer. And so they said back to him, son of David. Of course, right? It's no no-brainer. In fact, by Jesus' day, the title son of David was almost synonymous with the idea of Messiah, uh, with the one who the people expected uh, to come as a fulfillment of God's promise to establish the throne of their most famous king for all time. Uh, and you can almost imagine how this happens, right? If you picture it... Uh, the people give Jesus this answer, and, and so what does Jesus do? Throws up his hands with a gesture of, oh, you, you got me. It's David. It's Dave. Of course. That's right. But then just like one of those, those great old scenes from a Columbo episode that I love, he, he says back to the religious leaders, just, just one more thing. Just one more thing. He says, how, how is it then that David in the Spirit calls him Lord, saying from Psalm one ten. the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how's he his son? No one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. I love that verse. But you know, when Jesus asked what he asked, he wasn't trying to one-up the Pharisees. He, he, he wasn't playing a game of gotcha. He was being a good teacher. And how you ask? Well, he was reaching out to those men with something that they already knew and then turning their attention back to the Scriptures to expand on it in a way that they would never have expected. Because, you know, of course, the Jewish leaders, the teachers, they would definitely have agreed that Psalm 110 was a Messianic psalm. None of them would have spoke up and said, Hey, hey Jesus, no, David's not speaking the Messiah here. No, they're all on the same page, at least this far. But now that they're in a place of agreement, Jesus says to them, okay, guys, think about this. Think about this for a minute. You, you correctly regard the coming Messiah to be David's son. Fine, we, we agree there. But do you really have a full understanding of who this Messiah is going to be? He, he's not going to be just an earthly king. Uh, otherwise, why would David call his own son Lord? So, so let's, let's think about it for a minute. So at first, it, it doesn't sound all that confusing. Right? I mean, after all, a Messiah would have to be greater than just a David, right? And Jesus' reasoning is this, Son of David is your title for the Messiah, and yet David calls him Lord. So the Messiah then must be more than just a son, more than just a physical descendant, but one who's, who's above David and, and reigning over him in a high and exalted position. And I want to pause just for a second so we can kind of define and, and drill down into what lords we're talking, all these lords we're talking about before we go any further, because I want to show you something. Uh, and I know we've gone over this before, but it was about two years ago, so I'm betting you don't remember. Uh, and, and honestly, though, tr truthfully, it's so subtle, you may not have even noticed it in the English translation of the psalm, but David is actually using two different words for Lord. Uh, the first being Lord with all four capital letters, right? Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Uh, that first word being Lord in those four capitals. The second uh, is just with a capital L. No, go, go back one. Sorry. I get, it doesn't matter. Yeah, okay. So the second one is Lord in, in, in small letters. Do you guys saw the difference? You see that in your Bibles? And there's a reason for that. Whenever you see Lord in all caps like that, 
it's, the, it's actually in the Old Testament, it, it's the four-letter proper name of the one true God. Uh, and when it's written in all caps, it stands for that ineffable and unutterable name of the God of Israel, the eternal I Am. It's the most personal name that God revealed himself to Moses on Mount Sinai as. The, the name that our, our Jewish brothers and sisters won't even pronounce it because of their reverence for its great sacredness. And so instead, just to make sure they don't read it by accident, it's translated as Lord in all four caps. Okay, you got me so far? Now don't confuse this with the other word in Hebrew for Lord, which is Adonai. And that refers to lords that aren't necessarily God. It can be used of, of ordinary people, and it means master or, or leader or the owner of a property. And so David uses this combination of terms to remind us not only of God the Father's exalted position as our creator God above the heavens, but also in Christ that he's our individual earthly leader who is personally and intimately involved with his people. And, and David, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, hears and then records for us in Psalm 110 that Jesus quoted today, this amazing conversation between those, those two lords, between Yahweh and Adonai, between father and son, between the eternal one, the creator and ruler of the universe, God the Father, and his beloved son, Jesus, who sits at the right hand of that great name uh, as one who rules alongside him. Uh, and, and don't forget, though, Jesus, Jesus knows these religious leaders know the rest of that psalm, too. They know the rest of Psalm 10 that he quoted because, remember, they know their Bibles better than we do. They, they knew it from daily study and constant meditation and memorizing whole books. Uh, and so they know the next line of that goes, The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. Uh, and in that, Jesus is reminding those naysayers standing around him that the messianic kingdom is not going to operate like any earthly kingdom they're expecting. Right? Think about it. An earthly king doesn't rule in the midst of his enemies. No, he gets rid of them so that he can rule in his own peace. But, but the Messiah king that they're picking on here in person carries on his rule right in the midst of his enemies. And the world can rebel against it and him all at once, but Jesus is still in control. And it says his troops are arrayed in holy majesty. Earthly kings can't, can't offer that to their soldiers. But the Messiah's willing troops are his angels and his redeemed and sanctified people. That's the church. All because Jesus is our ultimate mediator. That's why Psalm 10 goes on to say, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And don't let that little section throw you. Remember, this Melchizedek is first mentioned back in Genesis chapter 14. If you remember the story, Abraham's returning from rescuing his nephew Lot. And he encounters this, this dignitary, this man who's called uh, the king of Salem or the king of peace. But in addition to being a king, he is also described as priest of God Most High in Genesis 14, 18. And his stature is revealed in that he, he's said to have blessed Abraham. Because remember, the greater always blesses a lesser. And this patriarch, Abraham, paid tithes to Melchizedek, and, and he gives him a tenth of the spoils he brought back from battle. And, and you guys can go back and, and read the story later on your own. But that phrase, order of Melchizedek, is significant because it teaches us that the Messiah, when he comes, this son of David, is not just a king, but he's a priest. 
and he's one different from the regular human roles uh, where other than Melchizedek, no one else in the Bible was a priest and a king at the same time. No one else. That's what Jesus is trying to get across to the leaders and the teachers. He's saying, your idea of Messiah is too small. You think, you, think you, you have an exalted view of him because you've been anticipating this great political leader uh, and a great army commander who's a descendant from a royal bloodline, but you're not thinking big enough. You're not realizing how much above and how much unlike any mortal this Messiah is really going to be. Because you see, Jesus is trying to tell the people that what we believe about the Messiah matters. Right? It's great to believe in Jesus, but who you believe Jesus is makes a difference. And it affects your life forever. Like, think about it like this, guys. When the people of Jesus' day, think about what they believed about him and how it affected how they, they acted. The religious leaders believed Jesus was a fraud and a threat to their way of life. So what? They tried to kill him. The, the crowds believed Jesus was going to bring them uh, as a king's safety and security under a new uh, Israeli nation. But when Jesus didn't meet their expectations, they turned on him. The disciples believed Jesus was the Messiah, but they doubted. And when he was arrested, they fled for their lives and hid. So church, what you believe about Jesus makes a difference. And like the crowds and the disciples, when life gets tough, our true beliefs about Jesus begin to surface. And so let me ask you, what do you believe? Do you believe Jesus is at God's right hand to intercede for you, or are you carrying around guilt for sins that you've already been forgiven for? Uh, do you get anxious and, and worried about a lot of stuff? Uh, or do you believe that Jesus is at God's right hand and he's been given complete control and authority over your life and leave the rest up to him? And lastly here today, Jesus makes clear that what we believe about him affects our eternal destiny. He said to the Jews, I told you that you would die in your sins if you do not believe that I am he. You will die in your sins. And it, and it means you're separated from God and you don't receive the gift of eternal life in heaven because you don't believe Jesus is who he said he is. He's the son of God, sent by the Lord to die in your place for your sins. And notice Jesus says, unless you believe I am and Jesus is referring back to that Old Testament name, that name God used of himself that we said was translated Lord in all caps, the I am. In other words, Jesus is saying, unless you believe that he is God, that he is the I am, you will die in your sins. And so Jesus is very clear that it does make a difference what you believe about him because it affects our eternal destiny. And Jesus is asking you today, like he constantly asked the people of his day, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? If you've read it in his, his classic book, Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis, he, he addresses the idea of Jesus being who he said he was. He wrote, um, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus, that I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. Lewis says that is one thing that we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a man who thinks he's a poached egg, or he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet 
and call him Lord and God, but let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that option open to us. He did not intend to. And Lewis finishes that quote by saying, Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend, and consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. That he was and is God. And guys, ever since Jesus came to this world, we have been forced to deal with who he is too. You know, the early church endured persecution because of their testimony of who Jesus was in the face of Caesar worship. The, the church in China today suffers persecution because their testimony of who Jesus is in the face of communism. And even right here in America today, the church is confronted daily in the face of cultural norms and political correctness and left-leaning politicians who at this very moment, guys, if you don't know, are actively threatening pastors like Pastor John MacArthur in California over holding in-person worship services, right? And if we don't start getting just as vocal as some of these crazies out there, um, the church is really in, in bad shape. And, and all of this because of, of his and our testimony of who Jesus is and our desire to follow him. And in the midst of all that, the answer to who he is is still the same. But to get there starts with a call to repentance. And, and for some of you guys, it may not be what you think it is. Because the biblical call to repentance is much more than just rejecting specific sins. See, the primary biblical definition of repentance in the Scripture means to change your mind. Right? Now, don't, don't mishear me. It's not a license to sin. Tur turning away from, from moral sin is always the result and the fruit and the evidence of true repentance. But initially, initially, repentance is a change of mind about whoever you think Jesus is if it isn't the Son of God. Because, guys, His identity matters. If you think that Jesus was just a good teacher you've got to repent and change your mind. If you think Jesus was just a great moral leader, you've got to repent and change your mind. If you think he was just an instigator of social justice, you must repent and change your mind. In short, if you think that Jesus is, is a myth propagated by the church to gain power and influence in the world, you've got to repent and change your mind. If you think that Jesus is anything less than the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, and the personal Savior and Redeemer of your sins, you must first repent and change your mind and recognize that He is indeed our Lord and our Christ. And, and that's, that's the same call we receive today, that, that effectual call of God as He draws people to Himself out of the chaos of this world, uh, a world where public consensus and, and pluralism and inclusivism uh, are the order of the day, and calls us to make a bold statement of identification and a brave declaration, Jesus Christ is Lord. Will you say that with me? Jesus Christ is Lord. And the Bible says, since we have been given a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and grace to help in time of need. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us today. But being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn on an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh see corruption. But this Jesus, this Jesus God raised up and we are all 
witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says of Jesus, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ is coming back. He is coming back in judgment. Is he, is he you, your Lord today? Is he your Lord today? Uh, or are you just sitting around waiting to get trampled? Let's pray together. God, our Father, we know uh, that one day and one day very soon that you are sending your son back to gather your people. Uh, we don't know exactly when, Father, but gosh, we can sure see the, the handwriting on the wall and the, the signs in the wind. Uh, and so we ask, Father, that you would prepare our hearts. If there's even one uh, in this fellowship or one listening or one watching on Facebook or wherever they're hearing this message, if there's even one that doesn't know you as, your, as their Lord and Savior, that you would please uh, surprise them by the power of your presence, the, the holiness uh, of your goodness, and, and the great mercy that you bring us in Jesus Christ, the, the only one that can bring us the forgiveness and the peace and the reconciliation that we need. And so, Father, uh, we place ourselves at your feet. And we declare together as a people that you are Lord and you are Christ. And we ask you, Father, to be with us as we go through this week. Uh, and lead us continually closer and closer to you and into your kingdom. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen.